0: All those different things, and I bet most of us, for all of our life, have been saying his name wrong. How do you say it, Doctor Doctor Seuss? Yeah, but apparently that's wrong. You see, his name is actually pronounced "soice," rhymes with "voice" or "noise." Doctor Doctor Soice. Uh, it, names are important, aren't they? uh, Can you imagine spending all of your life being called by the wrong name, and then you die, and guess what? Now you're not there to correct anybody anymore. They're just going to keep calling you your wrong name for however many generations people are reading your books. Well, names are important in literature as well. We're going to be looking uh, here in Ruth and looking at uh, what these names signify. But we, we already realize that names are important in literature. You can look at things like, like Pilgrim's Progress, the, the, the great allegory written 1678 by John Bunyan. You can look and you can see the man named Graceless, and then his name becomes Christian. That name is significant, right? You can look at uh, Pliable. What does Pliable do? Well, he's very easy to convince. He, he's convinced to come along, and then he falls into the slew of, of despond, and, and now he's very easy to convince to turn back. You have Mr. Worldly Wise Man. You can guess what his name signifies as well. So our question here today is, do names play a role in Ruth? Do names play a role in Ruth. Uh, We're going to look a little bit deeper in uh, verses 19 through 22 to answer this question, but before we do, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word that does not return void. Holy Spirit, we ask that you will work in our hearts. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Amen. Ruth, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 22 do names play a role in this book, in this passage? If you think about the names so far, let me just, let me just point some things out before we read this. If you think about the names so far, um, when you see the role they play, some of it's kind of like, wait, really? Uh, is, that, is that really the role that it plays? And so let me just tell you up front, um, this is a true short story. This is a true short story. So everything we read in here is true, but I think what may have happened here is either God preordained some of these names, uh, or maybe whoever was writing this down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, knew that, that, they, that God wanted to get across a particular point. And so instead of saying, um, hey, let's, let, let's put down Brandon, because his name is Brandon, they said, let's put down the name of what he signifies, and let's put that there in the story. And so the names we see so far, we see Elimelech, Eli, Melech, Eli, my God, Melech is king. Uh, we see Malon, uh, Malone means sickness. We see Chilion, which means destruction right? What happens to Malone and Chilion? What happens to them? They die, right? We see Orpah. Orpah is a term for for the back of your neck as you're walking away. And what does Orpah do? She's the one who walks away. And then we see Ruth, companion. And we see Naomi, sweetness. Do names play a role in the book of Ruth? Let's see what happens with names in our passage. Verse 19, so the two of them, Ruth and Naomi, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. So here we have in verse 19, after Ruth has made this incredible speech, this incredible vow of commitment to Naomi, and here we read, now, sweetness and companion are on their way into Bethlehem. This was probably about a 50-mile journey, 7 to 10 days. You know, I I don't know what what they talked about on that trip. I don't know if they, you know, sang some songs or did, I don't know what they did on that trip. Maybe Naomi was prepping her for a new culture, telling her what it's going to be like to be a Moabite in Israel. But they make this journey. They make this journey, and they arrive in this small town, in Breadtown, Bethlehem. They arrive in this small town, and what happens? Small town gossip. That's what small towns excel at sometimes. Uh, uh, it's, and it's partly because everybody knows each other. I remember when uh, Anna and I were engaged, and we were driving into Stratton, Colorado, eastern plains of Colorado. If you're, you're driving on 70, you're getting close to Kansas, and you blink, you passed by it. There are probably under, you know, 500 people or so. And we, we pull into this, this little town, and I'm not kidding you, everyone that's walking, she's, oh, hey, so-and-so, and, you know, somebody drives by, and she goes, oh, that's, that's this person. I think she was related to half of them. Small towns, you know each other. Someone comes back to the small town. What does everybody start to do? Oh, is that so-and-so? Are they back? Why are they back? What's going on? You know what I heard? And that's what happens here. Is this Naomi? Is this sweetness? And Naomi says, no, don't call me that. Don't call me that anymore. Don't Call me sweetness. Why would you call me sweetness after everything that I have been through? Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Call me bitter. You can imagine what she must have been like before all of this. You can imagine her in her sweetness. She was probably the one that got up early and made coffee, and she'd, she'd get some sugar cane and some goat's milk ready for you. She was probably the one that would go dust the sand off your pillow at night. She was probably the one who, who knew all the Moabites in town and, and would help draw water and would do whatever they need. You can imagine her in her sweetness. But now she says, Don't call me that. Call me bitter. I'm not doing it anymore. Make your own coffee. Get your own sand off your pillow. You say hi to me. I'm not doing it anymore. Call me bitter. And she gives her reasons in verse 21. She gives her reasons. First reason, she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. He's dealt bitterly with me. The second one, she says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. Empty. I went away full. Now, is that even true? Why did they leave? Why did they leave Israel? There was a famine, right? Is that even true? Is it even true that she came back empty? Ruth is right there. Ruth, who just pledged to live the rest of her life with a bitter old woman, is right there. And she's like, I'm empty. I got nothing. Nobody. No thing. Number three. She says, why call me Naomi? The Lord has testified against me. And number four, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She gives these four reasons. But did you notice what is the undercurrent for all of these reasons? Whose fault is it? Who is to blame? Everything would have been fine if it wasn't for him. And so she falls into that trap of blame. Now, I call this a trap. I call blame a trap because here's what happens. Here's what happens with blame. You see, blame, it serves as function that she can trade temporary relief, but the trap is you get lasting bitterness, it's disproportionate. The amount of blame that it takes and the relief that you get is disproportionate to the bitterness that you receive on the other side of that. That's why sometimes people don't get over it. It's because they can't. They need more blame to get more relief, and that makes them cynical. Blame serves that function of meaning of doing whatever I can to say, you know what, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. I, I'm going to put this on someone else. Now we can see this. We can see it in simple things like when a kid's looking around and they're they're looking for that toy and they can't find it and they can't find it and they can't find it and finally they look at mom or dad and they say, "You gave it away, didn't you? You threw it in the trash." And and moms and dads are like, "Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't." We see it when a when a husband loses his keys, right? looking all over, all over, where are the keys, where are the keys, can't find them, can't find them, can't find them. And then finally, they look at one of the kids, they look at their their spouse, and what do they say? Where did I put them? Where did you put them? Where did you put the keys? And then it turns out that uh, they put the keys exactly where I left them. Blame It has that that function of saying, it's not my fault, it has to be yours. I get a little bit of relief, I get a little bit of relief, but the relief is disproportionate to the bitterness that we get on the other side of that. And here is Naomi, here is Naomi. I went away full. I went away full. We did everything right In her mind, we did everything right. In fact, if Elimelech was not his name, then I think that's the reason the author chose this name, if it wasn't, in fact, his name, is because Eli Melech, my God, is king, and you can imagine him. Maybe he was a very faithful man. Maybe he would wake up every morning and and say the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Adonai know, The Lord, the Lord your God is one, Adonai Echad. Right? Maybe they celebrated Sukkot as a family and remembered Israel being brought out of the wilderness. Maybe they would celebrate the Passover together. Maybe they would do all these things. My God is king. They had a family. They had the kids. They had jobs. They had a life. And now they have nothing. And her only possible explanation, the only thing she can come up with, is God hates me. Have you ever known anybody that goes that far? Nothing is good for them and it's always someone else's fault. Hey, how's it going? Oh, not good. Right? Well, what, what happened? Well, I got in a wreck. Oh, okay. Well, are, are you okay? Well, I'm fine. But if they hadn't been in my blind spot, then it never would have happened. Hey, are you okay? No, I got fired. Oh, well, what happened? Well, my kids are always making me late. Hey, uh, uh... You, you got, got a pretty bad temper after we lost that, that board game last night. Well, you didn't explain the rules right, right? Always blame, always blame, pushing it off, and then eventually if enough stuff happens in your life and that bitterness scale goes up, then what do you begin to do? You know what? It's not just your fault. It is God's fault, and the only explanation I can find is that God hates me. That's what she says in verse 21, all these things that she's saying. She's saying, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, the Lord is against me. And the implication here is, the Lord is against me without reason. See, that is the side of blame that Naomi leans into. There, there are two sides of this. One side is to go, and we can't talk about it this time, but one is to go and say, it's all my fault. I'm the only one that's guilty. I'm, my, my actions are that important. The other side is to say, I am so good that I didn't do anything wrong. I am innocent. That's the side that she leans into. All of this is happening without reason. Now let's just pause for a second and think about Naomi. Let's just pause for a second. Can that be true? Now, now let's, just assume, let's just assume that God did all of these things. Can it be true that Naomi is innocent? I mean, she's already lied a little bit about leaving full, coming back empty. She's already gone and mixed her family with Moabites. That's a, that's a big no-no. That's, that's here in what she already has. Um, she, she is already mistreating a foreigner and a widow in her own land by the way that she is treating Ruth. Ruth may as well not even be there. She may as well just be a ghost right now. Is it possibly true that Naomi is innocent? I don't think so. I think it's her, her pride speaking. But here, here we see Ruth. Here we see Ruth who has as much reason for bitterness as Naomi. She has as much reason for bitterness as Naomi. She lost a husband she lost the chance at children she lost a father-in-law now <clears throat> now that she is has hitched up with this bitter old woman now she has lost her her family back home she has lost her culture she's giving up everything she has as much reason for bitterness as naomi but what do we see in verse 22 it says so naomi returned and ruth the moabite her daughter-in-law with her returned from the country of moab ruth remains faithful. Ruth somehow is protected from this bitterness. Well, how? Why? Why does she remain faithful? Well, she knows there are all kinds of reasons that people go through hard times. There are all kinds of of reasons, but instead of blame, instead of blame, what is Ruth doing? She is trusting in the character of God. We see that in her vow in verses 16 through 17. We see that she is trusting in the character of God. She knows that God cares for widows. And so even though she is a widow, she says, I will come with you to serve this God. She knows that God cares for foreigners and sojourners in his land. And so she says, I will go. I will be a foreigner and a sojourner in your land. She knows that God doesn't abandon his people just a little bit before um, What Carolyn was reading talks about how God will never leave, never forsake his people. She knows that God's works are perfect and his ways are just, as Carolyn did read. She trusts in the character of God. She she already, from the stories, already from the history that she has, already from the way God has revealed himself to his people, Ruth, this foreigner, this Moabite, knows God's character and she trusts in the character of God. And instead of leaning into blame, instead of leaning into bitterness, she leans into that trust. Now we know who God is too, don't we? We, we have all of this. We know who God is. And in Christ we can see that here is the only one here is the only one who could come and could look at every, every hard time, every situation. He could look at poverty. He could look at, at sickness. He could look at wars. He could look at lost keys or, or a kid's lost toy. He could look at any of that. He is the only one who has ever been able to accurately and completely say, it's not my fault. Don't blame me. I didn't do it. And what does he do? Instead of saying, don't blame me, not my fault, he says, I will take your blame and I will put it on me. And then he takes it to the cross where he pays for it. He's the only one who could ever do that. In part, I think of what we learn from this is maybe, maybe that we're asking the wrong question. Maybe we're asking the wrong question in some of this. You get a, you get a glimpse of what the right question is in John chapter 9. Jesus uh, is talking The Pharisees come, and they're talking to Jesus. And it says, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you hear what they're asking? Do you hear what they're doing? They're doing the same thing. They're saying, whose fault is this? Who do we blame? This guy who's down in the dumps, who do we blame? This man on the side of the road, who do we blame? Well, if you just made better choices. Well, you know, if your parents had done something different. Jesus ignores the blame game here. He completely ignores it. Look what he does instead. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he goes on to wash the man's eyes in a beautiful way, working with this man in a way that he can understand. You see, the the, the wrong question when we see hard times, when we encounter hard times, right? the the wrong question is to walk through and, and to try and play this blame game. Either to ship it off onto somebody else or just try and hold on to all of it ourselves. That's the wrong approach to this. The right approach is what Jesus is pointing out here saying, how will God use this for his glory? How will God use this to help me trust him more? How will God use this to show who he is? How will God use this to show that he is faithful, to show that he is true, to show that his works are perfect and his ways are just? How will God use that? And as we begin to do that and we begin to teach our hearts to do that, guess what? We begin to long for God to reveal his glory, even in hard times, even in hard times. It's okay to wish sometimes that things were different. It's okay to be sad. It is okay to feel hurt. It's okay to feel angry. But if you want blame, then put it in the right place. Jesus showed that at the tomb of Lazarus where he wept with anger at sin and death. If you want to blame, put it in the right place. Blame sin and death. But when we face the temptation to go on and say, God hates me. It's time to trust in God's promises. It's time to trust in God's promises. Ruth was already doing that. This promise that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, that is not a New Testament idea. God doesn't change. He has always been that way. And Ruth already knows that. She is trusting in the promises of God. And when we face that temptation to say, God hates me, or even to say, I hate myself, It is time to trust in God's promises. How can the one who died for you hate you? How can the one who took your blame on himself hate you? How can you hate the one that he loves so dearly? How can you hate yourself when he has given you so much worth? He will never leave you or forsake you. You are the apple of his eye. He sings over you and dances around you. And your sin is gone and Christ's righteousness remains. It is time to begin to trust in the promises of God. And if you do, you will begin to see that God can use even the worst things in our lives for his glory and our joy. And in fact, you will begin to desire that. No, you're not going to desire, God, I really want to go through something hard right now, right? But when you do, you will see God's glory, and he will give you joy. Now, the last question is, how do we develop that trust? How do we begin to develop that trust in the promises of God? And there are a lot of different ways to do that. This is one. Gathering together is one. Um, Sharing those promises with others is one. But I want someone else to tell you a little bit about another way, and that is singing the Word of God. I broke my neck, and you know, I've got these My hands are in splits. I can't move my hands, they're stiff and paralyzed, and my legs are paralyzed. And I was in bed in the hot spoon. he brought back to my memory these hymns that my mother and father had taught me around the campfire when we would go on vacations Mm -hmm. um, around the dinner table after dessert when we would all sing as a family for Sunday afternoon devotions after church or even at church on Sunday mornings and there was one hymn in particular that helped me so much and it was the second verse of that hymn too Mm -hmm. He's my soul by God, i undertake to guard the future as He has the past. That's a comfort to me. By hope, by confidence, let nothing shake, not even paralysis. All now mysterious shall be plain at last. I can't figure this quadruple thing out, but I trust God. Be still my soul, the waves and winds still know the one who ruled them when he dwelt below. And that hymn that I'd learned as a child sustained me on my sickbed in that hospital where I lay for a full year, not even getting up in a wheelchair, so depressed and discouraged. But thank God that the Holy Spirit brought back those hymns that I had memorized. Because they were my anchor. They were my lifeline. They were my lifeboat at a time when I desperately needed hope and encouragement. But I was in the hospital. Remember, I said I broke my neck. If you've never listened to Johnny erickson Tata. Uh, that was from two years ago. Um, we got to hear her a little bit this last week at the conference. But she knows something about going through hard times. And she knows what it is like to argue against yourself, to counter that temptation to blame, to counter that temptation towards bitterness, to counter it with the truth of Scripture. And one of the ways we do that.